If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to John chapter 3. We'll be at the very end of John 3, verses 22 through 36. Now, our typical pattern of preaching and teaching here is that we will open up the Word, we will read the Word, we'll explain it, have sort of the meaning of the text given to us, and then we will start to apply it to our lives. And we're going to do things a little bit backwards here today. It doesn't always follow in that that particular line, and certainly there are other things going on as well. But today we want to just tell you up front what the application of this passage is going to be, what it means for us, and then we're going to work backwards and give its explanation from the text. Simply put, the application is today is that Jesus is better than you. He is more important than you. His glory is more important than anything that you go through in your life. Uh, He is a better person than you. And we don't just mean that he's a better candidate for a savior, that you can't be a savior, and so Jesus is better for that particular role. Uh, We don't mean just that. We don't mean that he is just a better teacher than you or I. Certainly, he is that. We don't simply mean that he is a better healer and the great physician compared to all of the other doctors and nurses in the world. Certainly, he is that as well. What we mean is that he is better than anything else in the world and that he is worthy of all of your love and affection. He is worthy of worship and he is worthy of everything else. When we say that Jesus is better, we mean that he is better than us in every single way. So much better, in fact, that everything that you do in your life ought to revolve around giving him glory and praise and honor because he is worthy of it, because he is so much better than you. In fact, He is so much better than you. Not only should you live your life that way, but the whole universe works that way, regardless of whether you intend it to or not, because he is that much better than us, because God has ordained it to be that way. Friends, all honor is due to the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, and it doesn't matter what God is doing in your life. We don't give him honor and praise and glory and ascribe to him power when things go our way. It doesn't matter how happy you are, how good things are going, whether you are killing it at your job or all of a sudden you have lost yours. All of your life revolves around giving glory to Jesus Christ. If you are in palaces or in prisons, if you are living in the light of life or in the shadow of death, it doesn't matter. All glory is due to the Son. Christ himself shows this glory to Paul and explains that Paul will have to suffer much for his name, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. That calling is no different than it is to us. With our life and with our death, with our happiness and with our sorrow, we give glory to Jesus Christ in everything that happens. In Matthew 5, 10 through 11, Jesus himself recognizes this truth. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't sound like blessing, to be persecuted. Jesus goes on. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Not just when they do that, but when they do that on account of my name. When you suffer those things at the hands of people because of Jesus Christ, then you are blessed because Jesus is worthy of the glory and honor that comes from that. Neither does God simply hand out satisfaction for your good only. Your suffering is done for the glory of Christ, but also the good things that come to you are done for the glory of Christ. Psalm 135, 1 through 4. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. 
all of the good things that you get from God are due to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. All of the difficult things that you are given from God are to be used for his glory and the good of his name. He is better than you. He is better than me. We get a sense of this from the beginning of our passage. So if you will, turn to John chapter 3, and we're just going to read the first several verses up through verse 26. So from 22 to 26 right now, before we get into the meat of the sermon, which will be from that point on out. John, the apostle, writes this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming to be and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Jesus has come back into the Galilean countryside, and he is starting to baptize people, as he will, John will explain here in a minute. He wasn't baptizing, his disciples were baptizing, but anyways, the people who surrounded Jesus were baptizing people. And in this discussion, which we are not privy to, between this certain Jew and the disciples of John, this issue of purification came up, and certainly it revolved around the issue of baptism. When you're putting people in water, there's some sort of purity ritual going on, and and. Either they were reminded or this Jew reminded them of this Jesus who was also baptizing. We don't know exactly why, but it leads them to go back to John and be like, John, did, did you know that that one that you pointed out to us, that the one that you would witness to, he's baptizing? It's almost like, listen, your name is John the Baptist, man. That's, that's really your realm. He, he shouldn't be treading on your ground. This is, this is wrong. He, he is taking what is rightfully your sort of ground given to you by God. And he is, he is doing it. Everyone's coming out to him. In other words, shouldn't John be offended by this? This was his task. This was his appointed duty. And Jesus has now come and stepped all over it. Instead, John is more than happy to have Jesus take this from him, to grow in stature and in glory and in honor and we can see in his response from verse 27 all the way down through 36, eight different reasons. We can probably see more than that. I know some of you are kind of freaking out, like, there's food in the back. Oh, you got to get there. There's eight. We're going we're gonna to take this sort of rapid fire. Okay, I don't want to get your hopes up either. It's not Gatling gun rapid fire. It's more like musket loading rapid fire. But nevertheless, rapid fire. We've got eight different points to get out about why Jesus is greater. Why John is not concerned with Jesus doing whatever he wants to do, even if that is walking over his ministry, even if it is taking the very thing that John was appointed to do and doing it better than John, why John is not offended by this. Let us go then and read verses 27 through 36. John answers them. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from above. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. 
He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of our God. John is nonplussed and he is unfazed by the complaint of his disciples. He is not concerned about Jesus growing greater than him. First, he says, Jesus has been given the greater task. John speaks with sort of a pithy aphorism here. He says, listen, you know, no one can do anything. No one can have anything. He can't even receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. This is a very common statement, right? You have life and breath. There is nothing that you gain in and of yourself. There's nothing that you can do to sustain a moment of your life. And therefore, everything is a gift from heaven. If God were not upholding your life, you could do nothing. And that means there is no prosperity that comes from your hand. There is no good thing that comes from your hand unless it first was given to you by God. You can't have anything. And so the gist of this is clear. The importance of any individual person, of anything that that person might do or be, any lot that they have in life, any task that they are given and commissioned of by God is in fact determined by God. John wasn't appointed simply because he took the role. He was appointed because God commissioned him to do that. And as John himself has been commissioned to do that, he is not phased by the fact that Jesus has been commissioned for greater things because that is the task that God has assigned to him. And all those who are called to Jesus are therefore secondary in their calling. They are not primary because Jesus is better than them. Listen, go and read through the New Testament. And Jesus has many things to us, and he, he condescends to us in a number of ways. And so we can call Jesus friend. We can call Jesus brother. We can call Jesus all of these good things. But the primary way in which the New Testament speaks about Jesus is that he is Lord. And the primary way that we are to think of ourselves are his servants or even slaves. Paul doesn't waste any time doing this. He routinely begins his letter, Paul, an apostle, a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. He is our friend. He is our brother. But Jesus is better than us. He has been appointed to a better task, and therefore we are his servants in that task. Second, Jesus is witnessed to this way. The continual witness of Scripture put forward, not just from John the Baptist, but certainly from him, is that Jesus is better than us in all ways. Listen to what he says here. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He says, you even said, the one that you were witnessing to across the river, you heard me witness about him. He is the Christ. I am not the Christ. He says, my continual witness has always been that he is greater than me. And it's not just John. When he says he is the Christ, that means that he was the awaited one. He was the one that all of scripture was looking forward to. John is the one who steps forward and points directly at Jesus and says he is the one, but all of scripture is looking forward to the fact that Jesus himself was coming. In the book of John, 
John the Apostle, who writes, is emphatic about John the Baptist's testimony. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light in John 1, 6 through 8. Later in John 1, verses 29 through 31, the next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, My whole purpose was to point at him. This was my continual witness. This is the continual witness of all of Scripture. Two men that stand out most in the Old Testament as important. You might throw Moses in there, but Abraham and David sort of take the cake in this. David says this in Psalm 110, 1 through 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. That first Lord there is the name of God. In other words, it says, Yahweh has said to my Lord. Jesus picks up on this. And in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, we have this passage. The Pharisees were gathered together, and Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, Well, he's the son of David. And Jesus said to them, How is it then? that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, sons are never greater than their father. But this son is. The continual witness is that even great David had a greater son. Abraham longed to see the day of Jesus because he knew that the day of Jesus, because Jesus was there, was greater than his day in John 8, 56. The continual witness of all of Scripture is not just that Jesus is good, but that he is better. He is better than David. He is better than Abraham. He is better than Moses. He is better than anyone who has walked the earth. And therefore, therefore, we should understand him as such. This is what it means, at least in part, to call upon the name of the Lord it means to call upon Jesus as Lord and to call him Lord. It is to confess him as the author of your salvation, but also to express that he is greater, he is better than you. This is what it means to call someone Lord. It is a frank admission that he is greater than me. He is more important than me, and he has more rights to glory in all things. Third, Jesus is explained this way. Metaphors are always here to help explain things to us. The explanation that continually comes to us in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in every single form and fashion is that this coming Messiah is greater than all. He might be the servant of all, but he is greater than all. There's no doubt that this particular metaphor of the bride and the bridegroom is being used to help us understand the nature of John's relationship to Jesus, but certainly it helps us understand our relationship to Jesus. And John no doubt knew that the metaphor was used very much of God and his people in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 2, 2 and 3, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. 
Ezekiel 16, exactly the same phenomenon. God finds Israel as a, a naked, dying baby left to be exposed and to die in the wilderness, and he takes her in, and eventually when she comes of age, he marries her to protect her and to comfort her. Isaiah 54, 4 through 6, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. God is always to be the bride, or excuse me, the husband of his bride, his people. And so when John comes and he says, listen, Jesus is the bridegroom. The metaphor is there to depict him as the greatest and most important person. In our culture, the one who runs the wedding is the bride. She is the one who is most important in that whole, uh, I don't want to say circus back off of that. And that whole ceremony, right? She is the most important person. We stop, we turn, no one stops and turns and looks at the groom, but they stand up, they turn, and they look, and they watch her walk down. That was not so in the, in the ancient Near East. The groom was the center of everything. And John says that his role was to make sure that everything goes smoothly. The best man was there to make sure that that ceremony went off without a hitch, to make sure that not only was the bride prepared for everything that she needed, but the groom was as well. And when the groom gives his affirmation, he says, this is the best man's joy, to hear that he is satisfied in the bride. Paul says the same thing. When he is working among the churches, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you in 2 Corinthians 11.2. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. It is clear that Paul thought that he was being a best man as well. And his work amongst the people of God was to prepare them to be a, a pure virgin, to be a worthy bride of Jesus Christ, spotless and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. This is something that Christ himself does, but Paul understands that it is his role. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ has done that, not simply for your sake, but for his sake as well, so that his people would be without spot or blemish. So we should work in the same manner, seeking not our own good, but the good for those who are of the household of faith to encourage them in the Lord, to walk with them in the Lord, to give them consolation, and in their sin, call them back in repentance and in faith, because Jesus Christ is worthy of a bride without spot or blemish, and he is worthy of you humbling yourselves to do the things that are necessary to make that so to serve one another, even in the mind of Christ. Fourth, Jesus is better by necessity. In verse 30, we read, He must increase, I must decrease. Jesus will never get the glory and honor and worthiness that is supposed to be ascribed to him if you think that you deserve some of that yourself. If you think that you should be increased, that people should honor and respect you, that you should be the sort of the center of attention. People around here don't respect me enough. They need to respect me more. Well, that, that could be true in a human standpoint, but your thought in that is wrong. What people actually need to do is respect and honor Jesus Christ more, and then everyone will be respected more, but never claim that for yourself. Never think that you are the center of all of the world. Friends, he must increase, and you should decrease. 
Jesus tells us you can't serve God and mammon. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's true, you can't serve God and money, but you also cannot serve God and yourself. You can't do it. In order, in order to give God glory and honor through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, you don't work to serve yourself, you work to serve others, trusting that God is working in them, that they will then serve your needs. You decrease, he increases, everyone is taken care of. If you are out for your own glory, you will find it. You will think that all the goods you have flown are, are there from the work of your hands, that all the might and the power to gain the things that you have been given, that you are the master of your future, but this is false. If you think that you are the center of attention, you will make yourself the center of attention, but you will be let down in the end because it is only Christ who holds all things together. It is Christ who is the center of power and authority everywhere. He is better by necessity, friends. If you want to know what it means for him to take care of you, you must humble yourselves before him. Fifth, Jesus has better bloodlines. John begins to say things that are frankly obvious. He who comes from above is above. True. He is above all things. Now the ESV lightens this a little bit. He says, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth. But that's making John sound a little bit less pedantic. Frankly, John basically says here, he who is of the earth is of the earth. Right? It's a very tautological statement here, kind of like, well, that's, that's fairly obvious. If you're of the earth, you're of the earth. But his point is this. Listen, it is obvious. Jesus isn't from here. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. Yes, he was raised in Nazareth. Yes, he is from here in a sense. But as John has made very, very clear through his gospel, he's also not from here. He is an alien. He comes from outside of this world, and he dwells with us. This is not the same thing as you or I. He has better bloodlines. When we read older works in our family, especially English works, we are taken aback by Shakespeare and Dickens talking about how you can see nobility in people. So what happens is, is every once in a while, someone from noble birth who was born to the aristocracy gets thrown down with the, the, the peons, right? And, and they don't belong there. And there's always this sort of sneaky sentiment that, well, we could tell by the glimmer of their eyes that they were noble. And it's really strange in Shakespeare, because Shakespeare made almost all of his dough off of appealing to poor people. And Dickens upholds poor people so much, but it's so baked into them that they are noble because of their bloodlines. They are noble because of something that's been baked into them in their genetics. And it shines through. Somehow you can see it through the dirt on their face. You can see their nobility. We don't believe in this because we're American. We believe that all men are created equal. And that is true in a manner of speaking. I can't emphasize that all too much. Yes, we are all created equal. Men and women created equal all the way down the line because we all have descended from one man, Adam, who has fallen and in his fallen nature has shamed us all. And because of that shame that exists over us, we are all fallen creatures prone to sin, but Christ is the exception because Christ is not descended directly from Adam the same way you or I are descended from Adam. Yes, he's fully human, but he is also from above. He is better than you because he is not from the earth. He's better than you because he is from God. Adam is his father, but God is his true and abiding and everlasting father. Therefore, we have to recognize that Jesus is better than us. 
Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice cries. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. You, you are nothing but dust, friend. You are dust. From dust you are made, and to dust you will go. You are nothing but a flower in the field. You are nothing but grass, even if it's hidden underneath snow. And it takes nothing but the breath of the Lord to wipe you out. He says, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus Christ is that word, and he is not of the grass of the field. He is not like a flower. His beauty doesn't fade. He is strong and mighty because he is from above, which leads nicely into our next point. That is that as Jesus is the word, he also speaks authoritatively for God. Later on in Isaiah 40, 13, we read, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? There is one man who shows him his counsel, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord, who has the spirit, as John says here, without measure. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. That is, God has given the Spirit to this Jesus without measure. That all of the other prophets who spoke the word of God, Hosea, Malachi, Isaiah, all of them, all of them were given the Spirit in a measure, but they were given the Spirit to speak the words that God specifically had given to them. We actually have very little of what they said and did. But we don't think of Jesus that way. Continually throughout the synoptics, Jesus has said that he gets up and teaches, and when he sits back down, people were awestruck because he didn't teach like the scribes, but he taught as one having authority, that he was able to get up and tell people the way it was. He was able to get up and speak scripture to people. He was able to get up and speak with an authority that was unequaled in his time, and he does so because he was the one sent from God. He is the one who has the full spirit of God, and therefore he is unmeasured in his authority. He is unmeasured in his quality. The one sent by God speaks the words of God. That is, if God has commissioned someone for a task as an ambassador, then they get to say what God wants them to say. But Jesus, being in the very nature of God, speaks whatever he wants to because whatever he says is the word of God. Listen, no matter how many people might get up in front of you, no matter how many people might claim authority over you, no one speaks like that. And no one in this church speaks like that. We speak with authority, but we speak with an authority that is derived wholly from Scripture so that we have authority only and ever where Scripture says we have authority. And our words have authority only when they match the words of Scripture. When we err, when we sin, when we go astray, our words carry no more authority than those of the devil or those of anybody walking around the street at any given time of the day. Our words only carry authority when they match the word of God. Our authority is clearly derivative, but Jesus's is not. His authority is pure. He is better than us. Seventh, Jesus has all of God's love. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. 
The Father loves the Son with an undiminished love, a love that is not tainted with sin on either side. The Son does not break that relationship with the Father by doing things the Father disapproves of. The Father does not break that relationship with the Son by being sinful before Him, but because they are fully and totally holy in all of their ways, the love is never diminished. It is always powerful and pure and radiant. Therefore, God has given Him all things. Everything is turned over to Jesus. Those whom he has bought, those who are redeemed, are turned over to Jesus. Those who are his enemies are turned over to Jesus for destruction. All of the world is turned over to Jesus as his inheritance. Everything is given to Jesus to do with what he wants. God's love and all of God's love is pointed at Jesus Christ, friend. All of it. And almost none of it is pointed at you. Again, God gives you breath and he gives you mercy and he gives you grace so you can wake up and the snow has fallen and the rain falls and it produces crops so that you can eat and God is good at preserving your life and that is a sign of God's love for you but one day, as we talked about, that love will run out and the love that God shows, even the redeemed, he shows to the redeemed only because they are in Christ. God loves his son and he loves those who are found in his son. We partake of the love of God truly and abide in God's love only when we are found in Christ. The love of God is set on his son. He is better than us. And finally, Jesus' glory is your good. John ends by saying, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Again, we need to stress that whoever believes in the Son as John wishes to present him, you don't get to make Jesus up however you want to and say, well, I believe in the Son of God because I believe in the Son of God the way I want to believe. John isn't giving you that option. He's saying, I am telling you who Jesus Christ is. That is what you are to believe in. And anyone who believes in the way I've talked about Christ, if you believe in that Christ, then then you have, you have eternal life. You don't get to believe in any form or fashion or the Son that you simply want to, but you are to believe in Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, light of light, very God of very God, the creator of all things, in whom all things were created and for whom th- all things were created and in whom all things hold together. He is our salvation and he took on flesh and became sin for us to redeem us from hell. It is only the one who believes in the vast, the vast superiority of Jesus Christ over themselves can claim such things as that. It is only someone who recognizes that Jesus is inherently and utterly better than they are who can rightly and truly confess Jesus as John would present him. And notice what John says. It is not just belief. There's a trust as well but there is obedience. Who does the wrath of God remain on? Not the one here who doesn't believe, as he said just a few verses earlier, but it remains on the one who does not obey, who doesn't do the very things that Christ has called you to. Because it doesn't do to claim that Jesus is Lord and then not do what he says. It doesn't do to say that he is vastly superior than I am in every way. He understands the world. He understands how to organize my life and to do the things that I am called to do better than I do, so I should listen to him, but I'm not going to. To say that he is the greatest teacher in the world and then to not listen to him 
is to claim that he is not the greatest teacher in the world and that you know better than him. Obedience is a necessary part of faith. It has to come along with it. If you don't obey him, you don't get to see him. It means you don't know him, you don't understand him, and you are not in him. And therefore, God's wrath remains on you. It is for your good, friend, to recognize that Jesus is more powerful and more glorious and better than you in every way. So we need to live our lives and to think through our lives in a way that upholds the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ in everything we do. And this doesn't mean in just the grand gestures of life. It doesn't mean that you're going you're gonna to go and you're going to be baptized, and that's a major event in your life. Or, or if you sense in your own heart that God has called me to the mission field, well, then, then I'll go. Right? We, we, we all want to do these grand things to show how much faith we have in God, but frankly... The faith that we have in God is demonstrated best on the mundane things of the world. It's the day-to-day things that we do that show that God is truly the center of our lives. Taking time out of a Sunday morning to gather with his people and to worship, to pray to Christ consistently, to read his word consistently, to get to know him better consistently among the people of God and individually on your own. These are the things that show in your life that you actually do believe that Jesus Christ is better than you, that he is worthy of glory and honor and power. The mundane things matter. Romans 14, verses 5 through 9, Paul upholds honoring God even in the mundane things. Paul writes this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us, none of us, lives to himself, and none of us die to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. In your life and in your death, you give honor and glory to God in all things. Said somewhat pithier in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Jesus Christ is worthy of it. He's worthy of your time. He's worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your heart. He's worthy of your money. He's worthy of all of your suffering. He's worthy of every difficulty that you go through. He is worthy of it. If you were to lay down your life and die, he is worthy of that. If he were to take your life from you, he is worthy of it. If he is to make your road hard, he is worthy of that because he is better than you. In all things, he is better. Let us pray. Father, give us eyes to see your Son. Let us see him through your eyes. For you alone know the full extent of his glory and his goodness. We pray that you might allow us to see it as well. You call upon us to honor the Son, but we are unable to do this rightly without your aid and your help. We pray that you will help us then, Father, to give right and good honor to the Son, for we confess that he is simply better than we are. All praise and honor and glory and power and might be unto his name. Amen.